0: In this uh, past week's parsha, we uh, learned about uh, Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu was a bocher he was single, single, still at the age of seventy-seven. But magically, in one aliyah, he was a ma- he managed to get married four times and have eight children. And that was then. Then, uh, as the parsha goes on, that he wasn't stopping; he had another four children. Baruch Hashem, he was blessed with. And then it came time that he realized that's probably at this point, now that he's uh, in his nineties. And has a uh, bunch of young kids to take care of. It would be time for him to head out on his own. His father-in-law wanted him to stay. And uh, their relationship wasn't great, to be honest. So therefore, there was this discussion. There were some negotiations. And uh, his father-in-law says to him, Lovan, says, what would it take for uh, me to get you to stay? What would it take for me to convince you that you should uh, remain here as the running my uh, sheep business. And uh, the answer is that I'd be happy if I would be given a certain subset of the sheep, that if I would get the ones that are speckled or striped or what have you not, if I just got paid those, I'd be happy. and was thrilled. How have I, he should accept such an offer. We all know that it is very rare for a uh, sheep that is Solid to uh, produce a sheep that is speckled, it would require some sort of genetic mutation, and therefore he said, "Yeah, will <inaudible> for that you 'll accept such an offer. However, much to love and chagrin, all of a sudden, the sheep start producing these rare types of other sheep that Yaakov was uh, interested in. How did this happen? So one answer uh, that Rashi offers is that it was some sort of miracle. That somehow he put these uh, sticks into the water and the water magically became zera, and somehow the uh, female sheep were able to become pregnant by um, ingesting the zera, and there was some sort of immaculate conception, at least on the sheep level. And that's what miraculously led to this. That's one possibility. It could happen. A Baruch Hu could definitely do it. If a Baruch Hu wanted to do it, there's no doubt that he could do it. But, you know, the odd that we all know that Hakash Baruch tries to limit the obvious miracles in this world to the extent possible he tries to cover them. Therefore, there are other approaches as well. And one of the approaches is that Yaakov Avinu somehow or another had some great insight into the genetics of animals, into animal husbandry, that Lavan did not have. That somehow Lavan was playing checkers and Yaakov was playing chess. He was two steps ahead of everybody else. And with that, Love Unwent and he was able to genetically coax the animals to go and give birth to these very odd types of animals, these speckled animals, what have you not. I remember a bunch of years ago in Holmoid Sukis I took my family and my kids to Rhinebeck, upstate New York, to the sheep shearing festival. And there is a type of sheep they had, which was called Jacob Sheep. And it was speckled, and they had a, you can look it up online. In fact, there are such a sheep out there. They look kind of strange. Many of these Jacob sheep have four horns, which is very odd. But somehow or another, Yaakov Avina was able to uh, coax the animals to do that. How did he do it exactly? So as genetics catches up with the Torah, you know, we get more and more of an idea. There's a concept called epigenetics that uh, we all know that when it comes to genetics, there are dominant genes and there are recessive traits within the genes For example, that brown eyes is probably the most famous one, is a dominant form, as opposed to blue eyes is recessive. Therefore, if I had a one blue uh, gene and one brown gene, my, my eyes would undoubtedly be brown. But there's some way or another, what they call epigenetics, how you can somehow coax the recessive genes to show themselves. So there's a thought that maybe that's what Yaakov Avinu did. Somehow Yaakov Avinu, according to this approach, had a very deep understanding of genetics. And his deep understanding of genetics led to his ability to uh, become very wealthy uh, by, uh, doing, by going through this deal that he had made with his father-in-law, Lovin. This idea in terms of animal husbandry and genetics does not have much of a practical halachic application nowadays. However, the idea of using genetics for halacha over the last few years in particular has really, really become important. It gets reported from time to time in the popular Jewish press, and I think it gets misunderstood. Therefore, I wanted to take the time that was allotted to me today to understand, to explain a little bit of how genetics are being used, particularly in the uh, Beisdins of the world, but in other places as well. And to, and to help us understand what we have gained through scientific advances and what, there, what is still lacking and also what we can be using and what we can't be using. The idea of the basic DNA, as we know, is not, it goes back to the beginning of time. However, our understanding of the DNA does not go back that far. It goes back to the 1950s, the race for the double helix that finally uh, Watson and Crick were able to present that they had discovered this, uh, this idea of DNA. And uh, because of that, right, we now have a better understanding of the basic building blocks of life, that we have these long strands of DNA. And on every spot of the strand, there are two different genes. We get one from our mother, we get one from our father, and that makes up who we are, whether it's what color eyes we have, what color hair we have, how tall we are, perhaps how smart we are. A lot of this is genetic. A lot of this is nature. We are born a certain way. We, of course, control our lives. We decide what we do with it. But there's so much about us. The way we look, for example, is largely genetic. And uh, therefore, we kind of look a little bit like each of our parents because we each get half of our DNA from uh, one of our parents. That is the way we are built. In the 1980s, again, this isn't that long ago, at least it doesn't seem to be that long ago, right? In the 1980s, there was a scientific paper that was uh, written, which suggested that since we all have different DNA, right, the assumption at the time was that everybody's DNA is different, Therefore, we should be able to identify people based on their DNA. I would get a small piece of a person's uh, nail, maybe hair, hair follicle, etc. I could be able to extract the DNA and tell you where it came from, and that, of course, could be very useful in many different ways. For example, in solving a crime, right? In the event a crime was committed, but we find uh, some blood behind, or we find even uh, hair, arguably behind, we should be able to go and take that and be able to solve the crime since everybody has different DNA. That was a theoretical paper that was written in the 80s. The first time that anybody was ever convicted based on DNA evidence was in the late 1980s, I think 1989, in England. That was the first time it was ever used. Therefore, fast forward not that far to 1995, when you had the O.J. Simpson case, It's not surprising that even though the overwhelming evidence of DNA showed that uh, Mr. Simpson had in fact done the crime, a jury of 12 of his peers thought that 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 piece of information was not as important as if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. So somehow or another, even in the mid-90s, There was really no acceptance of DNA evidence. This was some sort of science fiction that people, in fact, were not rushing to accept. That is a little bit of the secular history. Fast forward another six years to 2001, we find ourselves at 9-11. A 9-11 There becomes a major issue of identification of body parts, particularly in the uh, collapse of the World Trade Center. And this is not just something that people are interested in for closure, but this becomes halachically important. At this point, I want to be able to identify people through DNA evidence for various reasons. Most important of all of the reasons being because I want to allow women to remarry. In order for a woman to be able to remarry, she either must be, if if she was married, she needs to either be divorced or widowed. In order for her to be widowed, we need some proof that her husband is dead. Typically, that's not a big deal. Man passes away, someone could look at the person and identify them. But here, when you had bodies that were crushed beyond recognition, this is a whole different ballgame. So, In this case, now that we were dealing with this, the question became, would we, as the basin, accept DNA evidence? And, of course, that which was true in uh, 2001 is, of course, uh, better understood now, 20 years later. So just to give the basic background to understand what's going on here, in general, as we said, you get... Half of your DNA from your mother and half your DNA from your father. Now, at any spot on your strand of DNA, spots are called loci. There are various different types of possibilities of what you can call that you can have. Those are known as alleles. And let's say there are 10 different alleles. So, again, the odds of two people, assuming that these 10 are totally random, the odds of two people matching their DNA at any one point would be 10 to 1. Now, if I would look at two random points and I would try to match them, the odds of us randomly matching would be a hundred to one. Three of them matching would be a thousand to one. This is basic statistics, basic mathematics. So they actually looked at 13 points. So the odds of a person matching randomly at 13 different points is a huge amount. That's the number, right? Beyond millions, beyond billions, we're well into trillions. In some cases, well beyond that, quadrillions, quintillions. Because remember, not every one of the alleles are are equal. So for example, let's talk about the, the DNA expression of eye color. Most people have brown eyes. A minority of people have blue eyes. Therefore, if I see that this person has DNA for blue eyes, the odds of a random match are going to be less. Most people are right these. Let's say this guy has lefty DNA. So again, that's going to make it rarer still. So depending on the DNA, right, the numbers could be well into beyond the trillions, quadrillions. And therefore, we're talking about the odds of a random match. It's not just their odds are there's never been a person that's had that other person that's had that DNA who's alive today. But if you look at all of humanity from the time of creation, you're still not going to get anywhere near the number of the people that it takes to have a random match in DNA. So therefore, one can make a strong argument that that is what we call a simon movham, that that is, of course, an overwhelming type of proof that if we show that somebody we present their toothbrush, we present their hairbrush, we present something that has their DNA on it, or even a better, a blood sample that they had given in at one point. And they test the DNA, and then they find that there is a uh, large uh, piece of femur that they find in ground zero that matches the DNA that's found on this hairbrush. The argument goes that that should be proof positive that we have proven that that person was killed in 9-11. Now, does everybody? Did everyone agree with it at the time? In fact, no. Not everybody agreed with it at the time, and uh, there were various reasons that were given. One reason that was offered was: this is a, this was a theory, a scientific theory. The theory was that everybody has different DNA. But you know what? If you really tested everybody in the world, maybe it wouldn't be true. Maybe we'd find that there are tribes in Africa, there are Eskimos, there there, there are people living in the, in who knows where, right, in in the outback in Australia, that magically they have the same DNA as one another. Maybe that could happen. How do you know? Truth of the matter is that's really not as much of a concern nowadays because over the last 20 years, probably close to a billion people have had their DNA uh, taken and sequenced, and nobody has ever matched except for identical twins. Identical twins naturally have the same DNA. So... uh, identical twins will match their DNA but beyond identical twins there's never ever been a match randomly of two people having the same DNA or even coming close for that matter. Another concern was well the way I presented this was that we are looking at 13 different uh, characters at this point they're up to 16 they look at and you know, the odds of us matching randomly on any one of them, I said, was about 1 in 10. So 1 in 10 is not a simon muvak, it's a simon benoni. If 10% of the people in the world look like this, have this type of DNA, so maybe the fact that the person have, we match here on the on this point, and another point, maybe there's a series of simon benonis that we have, but we do not have one simon hook to say that this, in fact, is the um, person that matches. Again, that's scientifically a very, shall we say, weak argument to make. Why is it such a weak argument to make? The reason that it's weak is because, well, what is the uh, reason that we generally have a, um, how do we generally identify a person? The way that we generally identify a person is, you look at me and they say, Ah, oh, that's Rabbi Rap. How do I know it's Rabbi Rap? Well, you know, he's he's uh, he's got a little bit of a beard. He wears glasses and he's got that receding hairline. You know, he's turning gray. You know, and he maybe could lose a few pounds. So, you know, that that's Rabbi Rap. I know him. So the answer is, yeah, but there are a lot of people out there that are graying and losing their hair and have a little bit of beard and wearing, right? The identification, what we call a Simon Mouvach, is just really a series of simon benonis. That's all what it is. So therefore, at the end of the day, when we, uh, when we uh, consider what's going on here, that's what a simon milvok is, right? What's the difference if I can identify you because you have blue eyes, or what's the difference if I can identify you because you have the gene for blue eyes? Really, at the end of the day, it's the same thing. So therefore, at the time, the Psaq of the majority of the Bate din was to accept DNA evidence. It's interesting, at the time, the Rabbanut in Israel did not accept DNA evidence. It was a totally different reason. It was totally, uh, it was very different than you'd expect. The reason that the Rabbanut was not accepting it is because the Rabbanut, thankfully, does not have many uh, Aguna cases like this. Thankfully, neither do we. But there are many, many cases of uh, paternity. And what do you do if a man walks into court, which is not that uncommon, and says, you know, um, I'm happy to pay child support for all of my children, but I don't know that these are my children. And since I don't know that these are my children, I'm willing to take a DNA test. And if my kids match me, I will be happy to pay, to pay child support. But if their kids are not my kids, let that other guy support them. It's a pretty good argument, I would think. So the problem is, if we allow them to take the DNA test and that happens, what's the status of the children? If a woman has a child while she's married to one man, and in fact the father is another man, that would label the child arguably as her mom's so therefore, for the sake of the children, to, to, not to give them the status of Mamzer, the Bezden ba- the in Israel held off on using DNA evidence. The problem was, you know, as, as the old saying goes, good, what's good for the Mamzer is bad for the Aguna. That's not really the old saying, but it could have been. So the, uh, therefore, there was an agreement at this point, DNA evidence f- as a form of identification is accepted, I believe, universally. Definitely, it's accepted in the, the, the Basin of America accepts it. The CRC Basin accepts it. The Robin Hood accepts it. At this point, DNA evidence is accepted. However, let's go one step beyond. There's another case that's pending right now in, in a Basin. happens to be not the Basin that I'm affiliated with. Of the following story, there's a fellow who comes forward, and he'd like to be proved that he's Jewish. He'd like to get married. And this fellow was adopted And therefore, he does not know who his uh, mother is. And because he doesn't know who his mother is, he's kind of stuck. But however, he does go through a a DNA testing service. I think it might have been 23andMe. And And the DNA testing service points out that that's your maternal grandmother. They're able to use DNA through kinship analysis to say that, in fact, that is your grandmother. The woman who they point to being his maternal grandmother is Jewish. But that woman is not speaking. She's not saying if, 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 her, if her daughter ever had a child, if the child was given up for adoption, she doesn't want to talk about it. The person happens to be not religious at this point, and therefore the person does not have the option of just going through a gay Rizal just say, okay, I'll, I'll play it safe and I will convert. So the question is, do we rely on 23andMe to say that this person is the grandson of this woman and therefore pronounce the person Jewish or not? Now that happens to be a very important question. It's not the same as identification. If the grandmother would provide us with her DNA and in the event that he would have his DNA and we would be able to prove that, again, obviously the, the odds are much much smaller than the numbers of a the numbers of a direct match but still the numbers can be very very strong depending on the type of dna etc there might be a very strong uh, proof here not 100% and not not 99 but maybe 99.9% that this is his grandmother would we rely on that to say the person is Jewish. Now, again, this is a few more layers involved in it. Now, this is not uncommon. I, I'm involved in a basin that does Gairus. And oftentimes, you know, when the first question you always ask them when they come to a convert is, you know, what are you thinking? Why in the world do you want to do this? Right? What's, why do you want to be Jewish? And the answer uh, sometimes comes in many different forms. It's very, most of them tend to be very inspirational, I'll have you know. But, um sometimes you'll get a very odd answer. You'll get, someone will say, well, I underwent a uh, genetic analysis and I found out that I'm actually 37% Svartic Jew. And that led me to do this search. Then I found out that my name, Aguilera, is actually a Murano name. And based on this, you know, I've always felt Jewish. I've always had this feeling inside of me. And now I see I'm genetically Jewish and, I, and I've done this research and I, I, I think I'm Jewish. Not uncommon. So how do we deal with that? So the answer is that we listen uh, politely and we say, uh, I hate to break it to you. You, you. You're not Jewish. That's just, just them's the facts, right? The fact that that your name Aguilera is Morano name. So that indicates that your father's family may have been Jewish. That doesn't really matter much to us, right? The fact that you're a DNA type, you know, to a certain extent, you know, you're 2% American Indian and 1% Eskimo and 37%. Irish. Well, that, that, that's lovely, whatever they're doing there. We hope it makes you feel good. But halakhically, that does not really carry the day for us. That doesn't matter. But this case is different, right? This case is a case where it's not as good as, you know, a direct DNA match. That, that would be excellent. That would be acceptable. But on the other hand, this isn't an overall, you know, my, I have Jewish type of uh, genetic material, this is more specific. And, you know, this is a question that's being dealt with right now. Is that good enough? Is that something you can rely on? The fact that you don't see the numbers, but a reputable uh, company is telling you that there is a connection here. And it's reasonable, right? Okay, The woman doesn't deny it. She just doesn't want to talk to the guy. Right. Is that good enough? Is that enough to say to someone that, in fact, okay, we'll accept you as Jewish based on the results? The next step beyond is something I'm sure most people heard of and not everyone understands, and that is what's called the Cohen gene. There is a wonderful fellow who is now the uh, dean of, uh, of Bar-Ilan Medical School, Dr. Carl Skarecki. I was introduced by Dr. Skarecki by a common friend of ours, Rabbi. Dr. Moshe Levy from uh, who's now in Georgetown, a researcher there. And Dr. Skarecki uh, published an article back in 1997 in Nature, which talked about what was popularly known as the Cohen gene. A little uh, let's take a step back into ninth grade biology, right? Based chromosomes, right? The, uh, all the um, women have an XX and, women, and men have X,Y. And you get your X chromosome from your mom. And you get either an X or a Y from your father. And if you get the X from your father, then you're female. And then if you get the Y from your father, you're male. Y chromosomes get passed down father to son, generation to generation, without any involvement on the maternal side whatsoever. So the theory that uh, Dr. Skarecki had, Dr. Skarecki happens to be a co-in, is that it would make sense that there could be a genetic marker on the Y chromosome which should connect all Kohanim back to Arunakohen. That is the theory that he was based on because again, if we're all pesan, therefore Kohanim, whether they are Ashkenazim, Sfiredim, Taimanim, wherever in the world they're from, Hasidish, Misnagdish, Modern Orthodox, Open Orthodox—all Kohanim should have this. They should be able to to trace their DNA. And he did a study on it together with some other researchers. And yes, in fact, they found a group of uh, five types of um, DNA haplotypes, as the fancy word is, that uh, that all Koh, that not all, but many, many, many Kohanim tended to. Um, to gather around, as you tested koanim across the world, across the world, across communities, over and over again, they were finding that koanim were sharing this uh, same type of DNA. Very exciting uh, find. Now, it wasn't 100%, but it was, it was a lot. It was definitely a lot of koanim had this. So the question uh, became, uh, how does this work? Can I rely on the Kohen gene to make someone a coane or not make someone a coane? Now, halachically, you will never, ever, ever be able to make someone a Kohen based on the coane gene. What's the reason for that? Well, that's kind of basic. In the event that somebody is a Kohen and they marry, let's say, a divorcee, A Kohen is not allowed to marry a divorcee, and the child that comes in that union has the status of Cholo. A Cholo is not treated as a Cohen. A Cholo can marry a divorcee, can marry a convert, does not Duchen, does not get the first aliyah, can go to a cemetery, etc. When it comes to uh, a, a child of an illicit relationship involving a Kohen, forget it. That's not allowed. So, therefore, in the event that a Cohen would marry a divorcee, the child would undoubtedly carry the Cohen gene, but would not be a Cohen. So, therefore, if you have the Cohen gene, it does not prove that you're a Cohen. It might prove that you're a descendant of Aaron, but not every descendant of Aaron is a Cohen. So therefore, we will never, ever, ever be able to announce that you have the Cohen gene. Therefore, you are a Cohen. However, the reverse theoretically could be possible, and this, is, in fact, the reverse is probably more important. There are people out there who are really confused about their halachic status. Right? Are you a Cohen? Are you not a Kohen? In the event that there's someone who's a Bal Tshuva, for example, and that Bal Um, has a tradition that they are a Kohen, but it's a very weak tradition. I remember we had a case in the Basin where a guy came forward and he said he's been acting as a Kohen for years, but he looked into it and he found out that the reason that he's a Kohen is because when his grandparents got married, um, his grandmother turned to the Masada Kedushin and announced that his grandfather, in fact, is a Kohen. Why did the grandmother say that? The grandfather had no idea what she was talking about. But she made the announcement, so the Messiah Kandushin wrote Cohen into the Ksuba. Later on, the family became Balichuva, not the grandparents, but, but his parents did. And then they followed what they saw in the Ksuba. But there's really nothing. There's no tombstones that have their hands on it. There's nothing in the family that would indicate there were Cohen other than the announcement at this point. And this person at this point says, if I'm a Cohen, that's wonderful. But if not, I'd actually be int- interested in dating, uh, you know, divorcees, converts. There's a lot of people that I'd want to date. The question is, can that person try to prove a negative? I'm not going to prove that I am a Cohen, but could I perhaps step up and prove that I am not a Cohen? Because if the person does not have the Cohen gene, Perhaps that would show that that person is not a descendant of Aaron or Cohen. And even though it's possible to be a descendant of Aaron and not be a Cohen, it's impossible to not be a descendant of Aaron and, yes, be a Cohen. So, therefore, there are cases which are coming up now where people are interested in testing for the Cohen gene, not to prove that they are a Cohen, because that will never work, but in order to prove that they are. Not a kohen, and if they are not a kohen, that opens up the door for many possibilities for them. So that's a question. Again, this is this is less than direct identification for sure, and it's even less than the twenty-three andme Me case where they're showing that there's a direct. Here, there's no connection to anybody, but it just shows that you are in a certain type of group of people that tend to be Kohanim. As we said, not one hundred percent of the people who have the gene are Kohanim, and not one hundred percent of the Kohanim have the gene. In fact, some of the families which claim to have the strongest, you know, connections to being Kohanim—people who say that you know I basically have a star yuchus—I could trace myself back to Aaron Akolin—do not have the gene. Right. So again. And that's a a little difficult to understand. We're not going to tell these people that they're not Kohanim. These are the most accepted Kohanim that we have. But for whatever reason, they're not carrying the Kohane gene. Again, there's genetic reasons. Mutations happen, etc. In fact, the way these genes were created were through mutations. So yes, in fact, we uh, we, um, will uh, not rush to... uh, We will not rush to to ever say that a person, you take the test and you're out. But it is part, perhaps, of a bigger picture that can be considered. If the person has reason to believe that they weren't really a Kohen, the person comes forward and says, the whole reason I became a Kohen was all based on a misunderstanding. And now look, I don't even have the gene. Can that be used part of the bigger picture? And I think that the sack among the, uh, at least among the YU posts, can be Rabbi Willig and Rabbi Schefter, is that no, that that on its own is not enough, but it is something to consider. That if there is a really borderline case, if the person pulls out and says, and besides everything else, I do not have the Cohen gene, that is something that is being considered as part of the, part of the bigger picture. Again, You're not going to do, say, 100% it's an identification, as you may do in either of the first two cases. And again, it'll never, ever play into positively making a person a choline. But there is a possibility that we can consider the coin gene as a negative. The last and final way that DNA is being used, and perhaps the most important way... And also the most controversial way is through another study done by Professor Skorecki, and that's his study he did on mitochondrial DNA. So again, mitochondrial on, yeah, RNA is very, is very popular nowadays. Mitochondrial DNA is part of the cell, the, the cell that really contains the least amount of uh, genetic material. Mitochondrial DNA is passed down mother to child. Your mitochondrial DNA, unlike your DNA, which comes half from your mother and half from your father, or your Y chromosome, if you're a male, that comes 100 percent from your father. Your mitochondrial DNA comes 100 percent from your mother, and therefore, theoretically, all of us that were descendants of people that were at higher Sinai, all of us that are descendants of the of the Imahos, right? All of us right, should share DNA, uh, mitochondrial uh, DNA. Because again, from the time that we started going by matrilineal descent, go back to then, we all should be related through that. Dr. Skorecki and his people went to search for this uh, mitochondrial DNA marker that you would find that would connect all Jewish people, or a lot of them at least, And they had a very interesting finding. Now, they found, I'm not going to give you the numbers yet, but there is something out there that is much more common in the Jews than the non-Jews. Now, in order to appreciate what these numbers mean, we need a little bit of background. If I had a whiteboard here, uh, I would uh, be using it. But uh, try to bear with me. I'm warning, caution sign, there are numbers coming ahead. So you have to be, I know that makes people nervous, so you're not just... uh, Inhale, exhale, there's going to be numbers here. Let me ask you a question. Let's say they they found something in the mitochondrial DNA, and it said that 99% of Jews have this, and 99% of non-Jews don't have it. And we randomly took a person off the street, and we tested them, and they had this, we'll call it this, we'll wrongfully call it this Jewish gene. Does anyone want to answer what are the odds that that person is Jewish? Again, 99% of the people who are Jewish have it. 99% of the non-Jewish people don't have it. And this person randomly has it. What are the odds that this guy is Jewish? Rabbi sure you want to take a shot at it? That's the only person who can unmute yourself? No. <laughs> so, one person might think, well, odds are 99% that the guy is Jewish. The truth of the matter is, it's a very different answer. Now, there's something called Bayesian probability. There's a fellow named Bayes, B-A-Y-E-S, and he said that in order to to answer this question, you're missing a piece of information, and that is, what percent of people in the world are Jewish? So we believe that one in 500 people in the world are Jewish, 0.2%. So let's take a random group of 10,000 people. If we have 10,000 people out there, randomly, how many of them will be Jewish? So one out of 500, that means that 20 of them will be Jewish. And 9,980 of them will not be Jewish. Now, in the group of the nearly 10,000 non-Jews, how many of them will carry this gene? So he said 99% of them don't have it. That means 1% does have it. And 1% of the non-Jews here will be how many? It will be 100. 100 non-Jews will be carrying this gene. 99% of the Jews will be carrying this gene. That means basically all 20 of them will have it, odds are. So in these 10,000 people, 120 of them are going to have this Jewish gene. But 100 of those 120 are not going to be Jewish. Which means that if 99% of Jews have it and 99% of the Jews don't have it, non-Jews don't have it, the odds of a random person testing it being Jewish is actually only one in six. We're not going to chaser. My time is, is limited, but you'll trust me. Because the way the, the amount of Jews in the world, even if 99% of Jews had this, uh, this, this, uh, this gene and 99% of the, of the non-Jews didn't have it, still, if you had it randomly, it would only prove one sixth. Five out of six, you're still not Jewish. So that gives you what type of numbers we have to be dealing with. In fact, the gene that they are testing for, 40% of Jews have it. That's not, we're not heading in the right direction here. But less than one in 10,000 non-Jews have it. So again, if we take our 10,000 people from before, right, again, we have 200 Jews, Right? we have 20 Jews, of those 28 of them will have it, because it's 40%. But of the 10,000 non-Jews, only one will have it. So the numbers that they're dealing with, even though the test, the, the mitochondrial DNA they're looking for, only 40% of the Jews will have it. Still, if you do have it, it's around an eight. It's 8 out of 9, almost 90% chance that you are Jewish. So that happens to be very strong. Now, if you don't have the DNA, it doesn't prove anything. 60% of Jews don't have it. Which makes sense, because you think about it, how many generations has it been since Harasenite? Well over 100 generations. If there was one convert in your your entire string, then you're out. You're not going to have that DNA. So therefore, it makes sense. 60% of us probably at some point had a conversion in our family tree. But 40% didn't. And therefore, we have this DNA. And this DNA is very, very strong in proving this. Now, also, remember the numbers I gave you for for the world. If I wanted to deal with the United States of America, where not one out of 500 people are Jewish, but one out of 50 people are Jewish, that 90% comes closer to 99%. Because the amount of Jews in my my, uh, sample is going to be much more. So therefore, the question is, can we use, again, Well, nev, unlike the choline gene, which we can never use to positively show that someone is a choline, only negative, the Jewish gene, which isn't the Jewish gene, we shouldn't call it that, will only prove that you're Jewish, but will never prove that you're not Jewish. And that is unbelievably useful. It's useful in America, but so much more so in Eretz Israel. In Eretz Israel, there are around 300,000 Russians, 300,000 people from the former Soviet Union, whose status is really unknown. In the 1990s, when the gates opened up, night and Parastroika, and everyone came running out, all of a sudden it made sense to pretend you were Jewish to get out of the country to get into Israel. And it's a fact that many of the Russian-owned weren't Jewish. They just wanted out of Russia. But other were Jewish and they just didn't have papers because of all the years. And Now we're stuck with hundreds of thousands of Russians who we don't know their status. And now they're not all really candidates for Geras. So what do you do about that? Can we perhaps begin to work on this problem by searching for this mitochondrial DNA? So the Eretz Chemda, a well-known uh, Zionist, Mi uh, Mi'Kolel, came forward, and they said that, yes, we think that you can use it. Rav Asha Weiss is not yet convinced. He's not against it, but he just says that we don't know enough about it. Technology is too new. More studies have to be done. He's not close to ever using it, but as of now, he doesn't think it's it's ripe or not. The Rabbanut stepped up, and they said that they're willing to use it. In these cases of people that are on the fence, and there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of them, The rabbanut said, we are willing to pronounce someone Jewish if they can bring forward a positive test. Now, of course, it's not going to help everybody, but 40% potentially, that's a big number. So therefore, the rabbanut made a very radical, and you would think a brave step forward to saying that, listen, we have so many people on the fence, let's use this. The problem was that all of a sudden they were attacked in the popular press. That they, This is Nazism. That Judaism is something that's in genetics. Now you're going to cross-force everybody. People who said they were Jewish years, they're going to have to take genetic tests also. And if they fail at all, you're going to tell them they're not Jewish anymore. What's going on? This is the rabbanut shift to the right. This is terrible. This is awful. This is the Haredim taking over the world. So if you know anything, that's the stupidest things you could say. You're never ever going to say someone's not Jewish based on it. Dr. Carl Skorecki, he himself who created it said, I'll tell you what my stories, he told me this personally. I hope I'm not telling any state secrets here. He said, I have the Cohen gene, I don't have the Jewish gene. He doesn't, like the majority of us, he doesn't have it, but he's a Cohen. Not a problem. So that's what I want people to understand that this step, the mitochondrial DNA, this this is a step beyond a long line of scientific understanding, which hopefully will consider, continue for a long time to come. You know, a modern-day and very much has to be on top of this. They have to be very cognizant of what science is saying, what's a theory, what's a fact, and what is what. And therefore, that being said, you know, we are looking, hoping, hoping that, you know, these... Advances can be helpful to us. The people that are moving forward and using it—this is not charadeization. This isn't attempt. This isn't 1984. We're not going to be taking everyone's DNA and voting you off the island on it. That's never going to happen. But rather, to the extent that it's logically uh, acceptable, I think we should very much encourage the rabbanut in the, their attempts to do this. And to the extent that we can help people out who are who are not sure about their uh, status. I think that would be a very wonderful thing. I see my time is up. Thank you very much.